I apologize, I don't sit while I preach. I, I was joking with Dave up in the tech booth, I should bring a sweat towel, because I move. But my name is Matthew, as I said, I'm the student ministries pastor here, and in an esoteric sense, that means that I lead, guide, and help students take their next steps from 7th through 12th grade. But in a more practical level, that looks like taking teens to camp. We just got back from camp last Friday with our middle schoolers and just got back from camp this Friday with our high schoolers. And we were talking about this idea of the great adventure of faith that we all find ourselves in, whether you're just starting out or whether you've been on the journey for a long time. And we talked about the mountaintop experiences, the valley experiences, but most importantly, we talked about the mundanity of life. Those day-to-day, ordinary, sometimes boring moments. And so we go to camp, but we also have youth group. Every Sunday night from 6 to 8 p.m., we meet right here in the building over in the gym for open gym and games, and we talk about Jesus and how to live wisely. And for the length of summer, we're going to be doing bonfires at my house in the church parking lot. It also looks like activities. It looks like events and retreats, like our beach trip coming up on the 20th or our Michigan's adventure trip on the 27th, and so on and so forth. But truthfully, what student ministries means to me is it means celebrating the successes of a student's life. For example, Riley Ferrier, it's your birthday today. Happy birthday. If you see him in the lobby, uh, you should give him a high five or money. He takes Venmo, so if you have that, uh, always looking out, buddy. Um, But it also means grieving alongside teens. And it means all of the life that comes, because let's be honest, 7th through 12th grade is a tumultuous time with a lot of change. Uh, But one of the best parts of my role here, and one of my favorite parts of youth ministry, is students ask the most off-the-wall questions It's not even funny. It is a spectrum of very serious things like, how do we pray? How do we read the Bible? Does God hear our prayers? Do my doubts mean that I don't believe? So you have that end of the spectrum all the way to did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Right? Or my personal favorite, and I'm going to tell you the honest truth before I tell you this question, it kept me up for a couple nights. A student looked me in the face two years ago and said, good God, microwave a burrito so hot that even God couldn't eat it. (laughs) The crazy part, it's a philosophical conundrum. You can't answer it. But Pastor Aaron told me that he would love to know your answers, so his email is on the front of the bulletin. (laughs) Email him. He'd love to know. But the truth is, questions are important. Um, Every adult in the room knows that questions are important. And my parents instilled in me from a young age that asking questions is a process of transformation. Because it's easy just to give the answer, right? It's easy just to Google, and now that we have cell phones, we, I'm Googling how much certain actors make, I'm Googling where certain capitals are. Back in my day, I just wondered. I like, oh, I don't know. Okay. But the truth is, asking the question is part of the process, and it's part of the way that we create a framework at which we arrive at answers. But the truth is, as we grow up, we have a harder time asking questions. For a lot of different reasons, but a few that I highlight is, we don't want to seem ignorant. We're really afraid that we don't know, and so we don't want to ask a question and let people think that maybe we don't know. Or we don't ask questions because um, we've been implicitly told that asking questions isn't a good thing. We've confused asking questions with questioning, and those are different. Or I think, honestly, one of the reasons we don't ask a lot of questions in life or really in our faith is because we're afraid of what the answer might be. 
We're afraid that when we start to check the gauges, we're not going to like the result. And so we just keep moving in the same direction, hoping things change and get better. But all the while, we leave a lot of questions on the table unasked. And because of that, I don't think that we maybe take as many next steps as we could. So today what I want to do is I want to talk about the life of Elijah in the Old Testament. And I want to show you some of the questions that we can glean from his story, this moment in time, that I think are not only pertinent to his life, but to ours as well. And I'm just going to spoil it right now and tell you the three questions up front so you can follow along and know when I'm finishing up. Here are the three questions. Who do you worship? When do you rest? And are you prepared to listen? And so let's kick off with that first question. Who do you worship? In 1 Kings 17.1, we get our first introduction to Elijah as a person in the Bible. And he's a prophet. It says this in verse, seven, uh, verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, Now Elijah... The Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That seems like a weird introduction, but it raises two important questions. Who's Elijah? Elijah, we don't know necessarily a lot about his personal life before he is entered into the Bible, before we read about him in 1 Kings, but we know that he's a prophet of God. And sometimes we have this misconception in our mind that prophecy means some Christian fortune-telling. That it's like a Christian is looking into a magic ball to see and foreshadow what's going to happen in the future or not going to happen in the future. And that definitely happens from time to time in the Bible, but more often than not, prophecy in the Bible looks like a messenger of God, someone who is given a message to go to a people group or a king or a queen or a kingdom and share that message. So in layman's terms, a prophet is a mouthpiece or an ambassador of God. It's their job to take a message and disseminate that information. And so that's what what Elijah does. He goes to King Ahab, and he tells him that there's going to be this drought or this famine, which raises the next question, who is Ahab? Ahab is the seventh king of Israel at this point. He's the son of King Omri, and if you were to look at the chapter just before this, in chapter 16 you would see that the Bible says that Ahab had angered God and his whole family had angered God. And the reason for that is because when God freed the people from Egypt in the book of Exodus, he made a covenant and a contract with them that said, you shall have no other gods before me. And what Ahab had done through his marriage to Queen Jezebel, which by the way, if you're ever wondering if like someone was a bad person in the Bible, see if you see any Jezebels at school the next time you're there. There are none. They threw her out her window and she was eaten by the dogs. That's the end of her story. But Ahab marries Queen Jezebel, and Queen Jezebel worshipped gods like the Baals or Asherah. And these were these debaucherous gods who, to worship, was often included temple prostitution, child sacrifice, so, you know, great people. And because of Ahab's marriage, where the king goes, so does the kingdom. And so King Ahab had started worshiping all of these other gods, and his worship had basically taken a forsaking route to God and an alternative route. And because of that, the entire kingdom of Israel was now worshiping these other gods, which was a complete breach of the contract and covenant God had made with his people. And so he sends Ahab to tell that until this worship situation's figured out, there's going to be a famine and there's going to be a drought. But the weird part is, this is the only verse in chapter 17 that references the rest of the story, 
We have to jump to the next chapter to get the rest of it. So we're going to look at chapter 18, verse 17, and I will preface with this. We're going to read a lot of scripture. I'm sorry, but it's church, so deal with it. So verse uh, 17 of chapter 18 says, When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah replied, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. For you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now summon all of Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And then Elijah approached the people and said this, and this is the part I want you to hone in on. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. This is not the first time you're going to hear this in the Bible either. It's going to come up again. The uh, Apostle John, the gospel writer, writes a book called Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. And in it, he critiques one of the early churches and says that they have a lukewarm faith. They are neither hot nor cold. And he says that God would almost prefer you to pick a side instead of sitting on the fence. Don't be wishy-washy. Are you hot or are you cold? Do you worship God or do you worship Baal? That is Elijah's critique of Israel. That for far too long they have flip-flopped their worship. And we might look at the story and say, well, we would never do that. Right? We don't have idols. Because we think idol means a little trinket or an icon, something that we have in our back pocket that like, reminds us to sacrifice a goat to the harvest gods. Right? We don't have that. I'm not worshiping Asherah. But a true definition of idolatry is anything that takes the spot of the most important thing in your life, anything that dethrones God in your life. Idols don't necessarily need to be bad things. Actually, Pastor Tyler Staten says that most modern-day idols for us are good things that we've turned into God things. They're good things that we've tried to make into the most important thing. And if you're ever sitting there saying, well, what do I worship? I don't know. Whenever you're in a time of trial or difficulty and you're seeking for your identity or your purpose, whatever you seek your identity or purpose in tends to be the thing that you worship. For a lot of people, it's their bank account or it's their job, or their accomplishment, or their family. Those aren't bad things. They're good things. But they were never meant to be the only thing in our life. The American novelist uh, David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address at uh, Kenyon College in 2005, and it's a beautiful uh, service, but he is a self-proclaimed agnostic, probably teeter-tottering on atheist, and he says this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So what do you worship? Because we all worship something. So what do you find your purpose in? What do you find your identity in? What do you turn to when you're going through difficult times? Who do you worship? There's a French philosopher, his name's Blaise Pascal, long since been dead. Um, But he had this thought that he said, every human being is born with this God-shaped void in their life. Or as I was told in high school, that we're all born with a God-shaped hole in our heart. And he says, no matter what you do, you try to fill that God-shaped hole in your heart with all of these things that don't work. Because they're not God. They might work for a little bit, but never long term. And so I actually thought of this toy that I'm sure you've all seen at some point or another. It's a child's toy. It's a block of wood, right? It has a square piece, a triangle piece, and a circle piece. 
and us, educated adults, have all laughed when we've seen a child who's working on their basic motor functions put the square piece in the circle hole. And we laugh because we know it's a simple solution, right? You're putting the wrong piece in the hole. It's not going to fit. But I wonder for us, how often do we do the exact same thing? How often do we try to fill that void in our life that is really only designed for God to fill with things that aren't God? We look to our accomplishments or our possessions or our success, anything that can make us feel something. But at the end of the day, because we're worshiping something that isn't God, we're left feeling a gnawing within us, a desire for something more. So what do you worship? Who do you worship? Because if it's not God, I'm going to tell you right now, those things might work for a little bit, but never long term. Second question I have for you. When do you rest? Uh, The story continues. Uh, Elijah calls all of these prophets up to the mountain, and they have a very simple wager made. They set up altars. There's 850 prophets that Ahab calls, and then there's Elijah. They set up altars and put a sacrifice on the altar, and they all respectively pray to their gods. And the the prophets of Asherah and Baal, they're praying so fervently, they're screaming out, and Elijah is doing what any self-respecting man of God would do. He's making fun of them, right? He's taunting them. He's actually, like, there's parts in the Bible where he's just straight up saying, hey, talk a little louder. Maybe your gods can't hear you. Maybe your gods asleep, dude, I don't know, right? He's making fun of them, and finally he's like, you know, it's time. So he makes a very simple prayer, basically just telling the Israelites, this God that I worship, is the God that freed you out of Egypt. This is the God who is faithful, and it says that immediately fire from heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifice, thus evidencing that Yahweh was the real God. So he has this huge moment where he experiences the power of God on display in the very next chapter. Chapter 19 starts with, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me and ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the lives of those you killed. She's threatening him, right? She's, she's directly saying that if you're not dead by tomorrow, I'm going to die. And she's the queen. She's not going to die. And so it continues. And Elijah was afraid and ran. Makes sense. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself traveled on a day's journey into the wilderness, he sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. And suddenly an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Elijah has had arguably one of the most prolific experiences in the Old Testament. He has seen the power of God on display. And the very next moment he's threatened and he runs for his life. And he hits an emotional wall. It's a physical exhaustion where he feels completely emptied out and carved out. And the first thing he does, he says, kill me. I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. Please just end it. And God's great plan of healing is for him to take a nap and eat, which is biblical proof that sometimes a nap and a meal is a good thing. So, but no, he says rest, right? That's God's whole healing, rest. And the story follows up. He, he gets up, he eats, he falls back asleep, and then it follows up in the next uh, couple of verses. So he got up and he ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, and there Elijah entered a cave and spent the night. 
Now, we can look at this story as a weird preamble to the next story, because there's still more story to go. But we can look at it as a weird preamble and say, well, he's just being overdramatic. He's overreacting. This is very zero to 60, right? right? He goes from seeing the power of God to wanting to be dead. And while we might not have felt exactly that way before, we've all been in a position where we felt at the end of our rope. Where we are just worn out. I would even wager to bet that we've all prayed to God at some point in certain words and said, I've had enough, just like Elijah. Teenagers and adults in this room alike have all experienced that feeling, a feeling like you've been burning the candle at both ends and all that's left now is wax. We've got nothing left, we're empty. And the truth of the matter is, there's this word that's coming into vogue now, but it's been around for a long time, it's called burnout. Uh, It's been an experience that people throughout ages have experienced, but this is the definition of burnout from Google. It means to cause to fail, to wear out or become exhausted, especially from overwork or overuse. Put it into layman's terms. The layman's terms are continued stress with no relief, continued difficulty with no reprieve. Any of those times where you white knuckle it for long enough that you forgot you had color in your knuckles to begin with. It's that time where you feel like you've hit the wall and there's nothing left to give. You are pouring out of an empty cup. Because the truth of the matter is, our life, more often than not, is like a cup full of water. You go to work and you pour out a little bit of the water. You come home to your family who you love or tolerate and you pour out water. You have hobbies and obligations and you pour out water. You have friends, you pour out water. You're involved in the community, you pour out water and water and water until at the end of the week, you either have little to no water left or the cup is dry. And the problem is, more often than not, we end up trying to pour out of an empty cup. Burnout is that experience of going to pour out and realizing you have nothing left to offer. They call it compassion and empathy fatigue. And I can imagine just about every parent's felt that at one point. I can imagine every teenager when it comes to final season has felt that at one point, where you're like, you just want to pull your hair out and scream, right? After the ninth nurse visit of my cabin at middle school camp, I wanted to pull my hair out and scream. The truth is that God designed into the rhythm of our creation this idea of rest. Rest is not some luxury that we get once a year when we go on vacation. It's not living for the weekend. It's something that's actually supposed to be designed into our every week. First book of the Bible is Genesis, and in chapter two, it's recounting all of God's creation, how God has created the heavens and the earth and everything, you know, and says this in Genesis chapter two, one through three. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished his work he had been doing. So on that day, he rested from all of his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on that day, he rested from all of the work of creation that he had accomplished. From this idea, we get this idea called the Sabbath, which comes from the word Shabbat. And Shabbat literally means stop. Stop, take a break. And so for Jewish people and for Christians in the early church, to take a Sabbath was to legitimately stop. They would actually have laws that would forbid certain actions because it would be constituted as work. And so God designed into creation the idea of Sabbath, not because he wanted to be an imposing jerk, not because he wanted to get in between you and your promotion, but because he knew that if left to our own devices, we end up working ourselves to death. That we will work until there is nothing left to do because there's never a good time. 
you're waiting for a good time to take a day off, it's not going to happen. It requires an intentionality to say, I know that I need to refill the cup because I need to give the best that I have to my family. I have to give the best that I have to my work. And you can't do that unless you take intentional time to rest and to refill. So when do you rest? I'd imagine for a lot of us, it's not often. And so whether it's a couple hours or a full day, I know a lot of people struggle to do a full day. When can you Sabbath? When can you Shabbat and stop and take a break and refill the cup? Because if you notice, it's actually one of the Ten Commandments. God felt it was so important that it became a part of the Ten Commandments. One of the binding codes for us as Christians, one of our binding ethics, is to respect the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. So do we? Because more often than not, it seems like that's the only commandment no one cares if we break. We can break just about any of the other commandments and there's repercussions, but not the Sabbath. At that point, you're a hard worker. And mind you, this isn't about work being a cause of sin. Work was there before sin entered the world. Work isn't the problem. Your car isn't broken because it requires fuel, right? Whether it's electricity or gas, your car isn't broken. But it becomes a massive problem when you don't refill it. So the question is, when do you refill? When do you rest? Because my fear is that if we don't, we end up like Elijah, out in the middle of nowhere, asking God to just take it all away. Because if anyone's ever experienced this hit-the-wall, burnout moment, you know it feels like complete and utter hopelessness, where it seems like you're in a dark world. So when do you rest? The third question is, are you prepared to listen? Uh, The story continues on. It says that Elijah had gone to Mount Horeb and gone into this cave, and this is the follow-up to that story. It says, Then the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord is about to pass by. And a great and mighty wind tore into the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? The world that we live in, and this is going to be no surprise to you if you've ever watched the news, the world that we live in is noisy. Constantly. We live in a world right now where we assume that the loudest voice must be the correct voice. And so we're constantly having culture and media and the news and everything try to draw our attention to it. But it's interesting that God chose to show up in a whisper above all the other things, right? It's a fire, an earthquake, and a wind. To us, and especially to the first century, people would have presumed that fire, earthquake, and wind, those are all powerful things, and the divine is going to show up in powerful things, right? God's not going to show up in a dainty and weak thing. But if you notice, the first thing it says after the earthquake, the fire, and the wind is it says, the Lord was not in the earthquake, the fire, and the wind. It's very quick to let you know that God doesn't always show up in the ways that we expect. And instead, it actually says that Elijah heard it, heard the whisper, and knew to pull his cloak over his face because that was God. Elijah was prepared for the whisper because he had spent enough time with God as a prophet that he could discern the voice of God from the voice of the world. Because the voice of the world shouts a lot. 
And if we're not able to discern the differences, we wind up in a position where we don't know what we're listening for. There's a Bible passage that says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, my sheep know my voice. And my fear for a lot of us in the modern church is that we don't. I can't always discern God's voice. And I hear more often than not, people will come up to me and they'll say, man, God just doesn't speak to me. God just doesn't speak to me. I don't hear him. And my question is, are you listening? And do you know what you're listening for? Uh, I also think it's interesting that Jesus or God chooses to show up in a whisper and not something more powerful. And I think the reason is because whispers require proximity. You need to be close. So I want to give you guys two practices before we close up. And then you guys can go out into the sunshine and enjoy the day. But two practices I think are helpful for us. And the first is very, very obvious. You ready for this? This is what a degree will get you. Be close to who is whispering. If you're good at whispering... You need to be close to the person whispering. If you're bad at whispering, you can literally be out there. Right? It's just the way. And by the way, we all have a friend who's bad at whispering, and if you don't, it's you. It's you. And we don't want to go to movies with you. But the truth is, if you're not close to someone and they're good at whispering, you're not going to hear it. Let me prove this very obvious point to you with an exercise that you can try at home. Grab a family member or a friend. It's going to be weird, but go with me. Grab a family member or a friend, go to a room and have them whisper to you. Then, I want you to try it again, but leave the room this time. And then, just to prove this tongue-in-cheek point even more, leave the whole building and have them whisper to you. Did you hear the whisper? Probably not, right? Because you weren't close enough to hear the whisper. The truth of the matter is, more often than not, God chooses to show up in whispers and nudges and tugging on our heart, things that you need to be close to God to hear and to feel. So a couple of the ways that we can do that, and this is going to seem like a really churchy answer, because it is, read your Bible. One of the ways that we learn about who God is is through our Bible. We have an account of who God is, how God has spoken, the attributes and characteristics of God, and the things that God cares about. We have all of that in the Bible. And so if you're ever wanting to grow closer to God, Learn about it, right? Spend time in the word. The other thing, though, be in community. Outside of the Bible and outside of prayer, one of the ways that God speaks to people the most is through other mature believers. That's why we believe so much in small groups and life groups at this church. It's why we believe in things like youth group, because we need people to be in a community of other mature, faithful believers. Because God speaks in those moments. People who you can be honest and authentic with, who know you well enough, to be able to call out those things in your life. So find a community of people who you can be open and vulnerable with. And the second practice is also equally pretty obvious, is make room for silence. Um, I'm going to tell you the honest truth. I used to go to Texas Roadhouse a lot. I'm a little hard of hearing, I will tell you that. Um, And so when I would go to Texas Roadhouse, uh, if I was with people who talk particularly quiet, uh, I would have to constantly say, what? Could you repeat that? And I'll just tell you the truth. I'm going to give you three of those before I just guess. I'm not going to keep asking you what. I'll just guess what you said. And so I had to stop going to places like Texas Roadhouse because it didn't make for a great conversation piece, right? Didn't make for an easy time getting dinner with my wife. The truth is, we live in a noisy world. And if God primarily shows up in whispers or in nudges or in tugging on our heart, the question is, are you in positions where it is quiet enough to hear a whisper? 
For a lot of us, that looks like daily devotions. I know a lot of people who set aside time every night uh, to read their Bible and pray. They pray the examine prayer where you look back over your day. I know a lot of people, myself included, who tend to prefer the mornings. Or people who work full-time and have to do it on their lunch break. But they're intentional about carving out space and time for silence to actually listen because prayer, at its simplest definition, means a conversation. It means talking with God, but it also means listening to God. Prayer is not a monologue where we just lay out all of our petitions, requests, and thanksgiving, though it is partly that. It's not exclusively that. Prayer is as much listening as it is talking, and so it's a dialogue, not a monologue. But to listen well, we need to be in places where we have silence carved out, where we can actually hear. And so maybe it looks like waking up a little bit earlier, reading your Bible, drinking your coffee, preferably Folgers, drinking your coffee and having a great time, but listening to God. And I will tell you this, every adult knows this, and teenagers, you're learning this if you haven't learned it already. If you don't put something uh, on the calendar, if you don't intentionally set that time aside, it's never going to happen. It just isn't. Because there's always more important things. Because God isn't grading you. Your teachers are, though. God isn't keeping attendance, but but your job is. And so when life gets busy, what's the first thing that goes? All of our time with God. And so I got this advice uh, when I was a freshman in college. Where's your God place? And the idea was have a time and a place that you have scheduled in where you say from this time to this time, I'm going to meet with God. It's an appointment. It's not, it's not flexible. It's an appointment. Where I'm going to take 10, 15, if you're really like overzealous, an hour, but probably 10 or 15 minutes to sit in silence to read my Bible and to pray. And I'm going to tell you, some days you're going to hear nothing. You're just not. In which case, that silence will be a really nice meditative thing before you go to work. So it's not a loss. But there are days where you feel the presence of God, where it feels like there's a parting in the clouds and you have a little bit of hope, a light at the end of the tunnel, and thank God it's not a train. So do you have room for silence in your life? Because if you want to hear the whisper of God, you're not going to hear it in the noise of the world. The world is just far too noisy. So my final question, I told you I'd give you three, but I'm giving you a bonus, kudos. What will your response be? Uh, In a few minutes, probably 15 minutes, uh, you'll either hang out in the lobby or you'll go home. You'll go back to your lives, you'll go back to your jobs, your summer activities. And my question is, this moment, this whole service can just be a blip on the radar. And for a lot of people, it will be. But if you've been sitting in this room and one of these questions really hits you and you're like, man, I haven't been worshiping God in a long time. Or I've split my focus on worshiping God and I've been worshiping God and something else, which the Bible talks a lot about. Maybe today is a day that you want to commit to following Jesus again, making God the center of your life. Or you realize you haven't rested in a really long time and you feel exactly like Elijah. You feel empty and carved out and emotionally tapped. If that's you, I would encourage you to go home, sit with your family, and find a time this week, not next month, not next year, this week, where you can rest. And the final thing is if you sat in this room and you said, I don't know if I'm prepared to hear the whisper of God, that I'd ask you to go home and find a time tomorrow and the rest of this week and commit to that time to make room for silence and to grow closer to the person who's whispering. Questions are really important. 
They ultimately transform us and guide us to create better frameworks at arriving at answers. And so my question is, what questions are you asking? And are they leading you to Jesus? Let's pray. Dear God, we are so gracious and glad and thankful to be in this place. Thank you so much for your love and kindness. I pray that this week, that we will choose to follow you, that we will choose to believe today, that we will have faith. And I pray that every day that we're alive, we become more and more like Jesus Christ, that we become people of love and kindness, not hate and division. I pray that we can add to the solution, not be a part of the problem. I pray that we continue to ask good questions and that we continue to foster a community of people who are open to the journey of Christ. Amen.